Hi, everybody. I'm Nick Forster, host of the long-running radio program E-Town. I want to welcome you to Purple State. Purple State is an experiment or an exploration, really, in which we're trying to understand the root causes of what's dividing us as an American society and to find a path out of that contentious political environment we find ourselves in today. Welcome to this third installment of our Purple State podcast. In episode two, we began exploring the concept of truth and how we have a, kind of an increasingly divergent version of what truth really means, particularly in our political arena. We spoke with a political scientist and a researcher about the erosion of facts and the selective truths that we all seem to be gravitating towards. Today, we're going to get a somewhat different perspective. That is, how do scientists, researchers, fact finders, convey solid data and facts in a way that the public will understand and eventually, hopefully, accept as truth. I'd like to introduce right now Dr. Christy McCain. She's a professor in the University of Colorado's Department of Evolutionary Biology and Ecology. Hi, Christy. Hi. Thanks for joining this conversation, Purple State. Sure. So as a professor and as a scientist... How do you communicate the results of your research in such a way that people will actually grok it and understand it and be able to utilize it? Uh, every scientist chooses their own level of communication to the public. But I think we do have this uh, obligation to try to communicate what we find that does have societal repercussions. Yeah. Uh, at least for me, the um, bottom line is just trying to connect with people on a basis that's just human being to human being, right? Not trying to set up some kind of dynamic ahead of time that's like professor to person right. or, you know, or some liberal academic to some other person. It's just to find a way to communicate with that person about what I've learned about the world and what they might take away from that if they want to yeah. uh, be so engaged. But yeah. have you ever found a situation where your research has, for some reason, touched a political hot button in such a way so that you had to be careful about how you shared the information? Oh, yeah. So my main research bent is trying to understand biodiversity and conserve it. A lot of what I do is actually the impacts of how the climate is changing. Right. So you could say it as climate change, right, mm -hmm. which is, would be much more of a trigger to certain people, right? Oh, you're a climate change person, therefore you're in this camp, and I'm not in that camp. Right. It's true. What do you yeah. think that's all about? Uh, people don't have all of those data points, right? They don't mm -hmm. understand all of the many, many years of background that we've built up to understand climate and right. how it's changing, which is totally understandable. It's a huge field. I mean, mm -hmm. there's entire people that's in their field of academic research. So, But I think there's a lot of misinformation, but I think it's also an issue of purely social dynamics in that it's an economic issue, right? Because... I think part of it has just been that it's become one of those buzzwords that's associated with a group of people in their ideology, right? And so if you are part of that ideology, then you feel like that's part of your identity. I think that's, you know, it's become a little bit of an identity politics issue, right? Yeah. Um, you know, back to this subject of truth, which is about trusting and trusting the source. Right. Scientists are smart, <laughs> and they know stuff that we don't know, and they're going to figure it out. Right. Are you seeing that being eroded these days, like the trust in science and data? 
Definitely. You know, they've done those studies where who is designated as an expert is actually based on whether you see that person as being part of your group. Right. There have been similar studies that have shown that, you know, academics and scientists tend to be among occupations actually more believable than other people. But I wouldn't say that, you know, we should be more believable. We just might have data points yeah. that are important for people to assess some kind of truth or reality. Yeah, you could prove your point. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least we can weigh the point. So we work in weighing data, like the majority of data is mm-hmm. supports this particular hypothesis, right? I never use the words facts and truth. Mm-hmm. I use data. Yeah. Data and does it support a hypothesis or does it refute it? Well, because science is also changing. Science, there's discovery and there's a theory or a hypothesis that gets proven or disproven. Right. Let me ask you this. Back to this issue of, of trust mm-hmm. and trusting information. Have you ever been in a situation where as a woman and as a scientist, your research hasn't gotten the immediate respect or trust that it might have gotten had you been a man? Oh, yeah. I think that's true for probably all scientists. I mean, women scientists now. I think most people realize that, you know, our papers probably take a little bit more rounds of uh, reviews or revisions or have to be sent to more journals or go to NSF a couple more times. They've actually done studies on this. There's data. Yeah, there's data. (laughs) (laughs) So in the data are tricky to tease apart now because science is actually very collaborative. So, you know, I have a paper that came out, I think last week, right? And there's two women authors and two men authors. So if you do try to do a little bit of investigation on this, it can be kind of tricky, but that's where that statement about women have to work three times harder to do the same work is from a study of, I think it's uh, a European research agency where Mm. women had to apply three times for funding to get it, whereas men would get it, you know, in in one try or, you know, the equivalent of so. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I wrote a grant to the NSF and didn't get it. (laughs) That's not uncommon, (laughs) right? Yeah, Yeah. so (laughs) it's challenging. That doesn't cheer me up, but I'm glad to know. Um, So how do you and your students help people understand the value of the work you're doing because part of it is you have to do the research and you have to present your papers and you have to publish and you have to make sure this stuff is good the data points are good but Mm -hmm. how do you and your students actually help other people understand why it's important um I teach a class for graduate students that's called Creative Conservation Messaging, which tries to help them just practice this skill. So can you recraft your message for a Mm non-scientist and just tell it as a story that is relatable to them and has some reasons for why you did what you did? And they don't have to be, you know, these huge societal changes like cure to cancer. They can be like, I'm trying to find this one piece of the puzzle that will then build a bigger mm-hmm. understanding of the world. Which can make for a good story. Yeah. And most of them are actually because yeah. they're unusual. People have never heard about them before. But it also is thinking about your audience and trying to connect with your audience. And so much of conservation or science messaging can be very isolating by the words that are chosen, Mm -hmm. for instance. And so trying to just use language in a way that that connects with more people. 
Um, but also just to think about your audience as, as human beings, you know, and choose your message for the audience. Mm-hmm. For instance, you know, I give the example that um, my mom's side of the family comes from a farm in North Dakota, and my cousins are still farming in North Dakota. North Dakota's, you know, a very conservative state, but I talked to my cousin who farms and he knows every single thing about how the climate has changed and he's changed his practice, what plants he plants, when he plants them, all those different things. So he really does have a ton of data points Mm -hmm. about how the world is changing and how Mm -hmm. quickly it's changing. So if we can just meet at that point and talk right. about it and what might happen in 10, 15 years or if his children take over the farm, what's the impacts might be? Yeah, I think that's a big part of this. Um, that combination of the information and the inspiration mm-hmm. and the invitation to become active and engaged mm-hmm. is in fact making a difference. Definitely. I think the research shows that if you do just have purely doom and gloom, you paralyze people. They, yeah. they think the problem's so big that they can't do anything about it and that their personal change won't make a difference. Yeah. Um, well, Christy, let me ask you, in this current um, political landscape that I think is kind of extreme, which is why we're doing Purple State, because there is this divisiveness and this tension, mm-hmm. this red state, blue state stuff that's just counterproductive. Do you feel that there is a, you know, unspoken but sort of codified uh, persecution of science and scientists in this political landscape right now? Undeniably, right? I mean, look at the changes that have happened at the EPA, for instance, and putting people in charge of scientific entities that aren't scientists and that do have a political agenda that are sometimes the exact opposite of the purpose of that agency. But I think there's also room for hope. You know, I was at NSF on a panel last year and they had spoken about doing discussions with different politicians and even some of the Republicans were discussing trying to increase the science budget. So I don't think it's totally bleak. Mm -hmm. And in a way, having this extreme situation that we're in now will help us realize, you know, that we have to set clear priorities and is this the trajectory we want to take or is it something else? And so, you know, sometimes we get complacent about thinking the world is one way because it's really quiet on one side. And now when we see that other really drastically different side that maybe we didn't realize was so prevalent in our society, you know, it might actually help by helping us set our priorities or reset our priorities in the next 10 years or something. So have you got a story or any example that comes to mind of you uh, coming in contact with somebody whose truth was significantly different from yours and you found some way to pierce the veil and communicate? Yeah. Um, The story I tell my students that we sort of um, use as sort of a sounding board is that I come from a family from California, but my dad is a huge hunter. So he comes to Colorado from California every year to hunt. And he's in his 80s. And so I went with him to hunt to make sure everything went well. Right. <laughs> I mean, I grew up hunting too, but I was the only woman. There was like, you know, between 14 and 16 men. And we're in this camp for six days. And none of them agree with, you know, most of probably what I would vote for necessarily, you know. But they're all good human beings. And so... You know, I think they were very skeptical of, first, I'm a female, then I'm a scientist. So they would love to jab, you know, like they called me the professor, you know, and things like that. But I think over time, I didn't try to just jump in and be like, this is what I believe and have this like confrontational discussion, right? It was more like we just built trust. And then at dinner, if something came up, I would just 
interject the information that I knew mm-hmm. about it from a non-confrontational yeah. way. And Did you get off a couple good shots along the way? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, <laughs> more of this was like animal conservation, yeah. right? Like what you should and shouldn't do. Anyway, I mean, there's something to be said for being a hunter. I mean, they sit outside for eight hours at a time just looking. Yeah. You know, and most people in a city that might be supportive of environmental issues, maybe have never been outside for six or eight hours at a time, right? So they definitely have amazing knowledge about the world too. And they come from interesting perspectives and some of them are quite thoughtful. So that's my thing that I try to think, okay, if would this message go over? Could I even start this conversation Mm -hmm. with them? And how might I start that conversation without making myself really uncomfortable and them really uncomfortable? Yeah, just two human beings having a conversation, not something that's trying to change somebody on the spot, right? Yeah. Well, listen, Christy, thanks so much for joining us. This is just all about trying to hear some different perspectives and points of view and thinking about finding common ground and understanding that truth isn't necessarily fungible, nor is scientific data, but it does evolve and people perceive it differently and embrace it in different ways. And coming to the conversation with at least the understanding that you can respect somebody else's truth while still holding on to your own and looking for common points of discussion is kind of what we're hoping to do. Yeah. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Christy McCain. She's a professor in the University of Colorado's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. I'm Nick Forster. Thanks for joining me today for this installment of the Purple State Podcast. We'll continue to explore various subjects and concepts in the future, finding ways to bridge the gap between red states and blue states, and find some common ground along the way. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks to our Purple State contributors and crew, including Todd Ayers, Vanessa Mazal, Nick Hazel, Helen Forster, and Allie Lightfoot. (laughs) 